The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Perhaps you have heard of or even read the book, The Promise or The Purpose Driven Life. That was a popular book years ago, still is really. It's a certain way of framing the Christian life. I think framing the Christian life this way is perhaps better. Before we can say or talk about any kind of purpose we have in the Christian life, we have to talk about the promises that we are rooted in and where our faith is rooted in, and our purpose will be drawn from that. So I'm drawing from that popular book, but I'm framing it a little differently. The promise-driven faith, or promise-driven faith, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 22, and I want to just catch us up to speed once again to remind us where we're at in this book and what's going on, because... Really, if we don't understand that, we don't understand, we won't understand this book. The Jewish Christians to whom the author is writing were struggling under some pretty serious persecution, as far as we can tell. They had previously, some of them at least, had previously withstood some uh, uh, loss of property. They were being ill-treated publicly. They were being shamed and slandered for Christ's sake. They were being pressured, it appears, to leave the Christian faith, to leave Christ, and to go back to their former life as Jews in the sacrificial system and all the rituals that were part of that. And so what the the temptation was is to leave Christ and to retreat back into that old covenant system, to leave the new covenant and to come back into the old covenant. But it seems as though there was a time when these believers were able to see through their difficult circumstances and to behold with faith the future that God had laid out for them in, the, in their eternal inheritance. In fact, the author even discusses this very thing when he tells them, you need to remind yourself of those former days when you first came to Christ. And remember how on fire you were? Remember how clearly you saw those spiritual realities before you so that you could actually endure these tough, challenging losses and the slander and the ill treatment that you were receiving? This is verse 32 of chapter 10. He says, but recall the former days when... After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance." so that when you have uh, done the will of God, you will have received what is promised. There was a time when these believers, and it was at their initial conversion, when these believers were so enthralled with their future inheritance with God in heaven for all eternity, that they were able actually to endure someone coming along and taking their property, saying, we don't think that you should be worshiping God this way. We're actually going to persecute you publicly and we're going to make you feel the effects of this persecution in terms of your financial well-being and they were saying take it because I have a better home that's coming and the author of Hebrews is saying remember that remember when you were able to be ill-treated publicly and and yet remain faithful to the Lord remember when you're able to see by faith that eternal inheritance and be able to give up all that you had and so They were in need of endurance, however, because the author of Hebrews recognized that they were starting to wobble. That's why he says you have need of endurance. They needed endurance. He recognized that their their pace was a little off. 
You can see this when an, a long-distance runner starts to hit a wall, as they say, or boink. You might have heard that expression before. You see when a long-distance runner is starting to boink. It means they're, they're, they're hitting a wall. They've all of a sudden lost energy and motivation in the mid part of their run, or in the latter part of their run even, to continue. And you can see it when it happens. Their pace shortens. Their mouth starts to gape open because they're gasping at more air. Their hands start to drop. Their pace slows. You can see you see it when it happens. It's pretty easy to identify when a long-distance runner is starting to hit a wall. And the author believes that these long-distance runners the, that he's writing to have begun to hit a wall. And he's concerned that they're going to walk over to the sidelines And they're going to lift up that rope that separates the spectators from the participants, and they're going to leave the race altogether. That's what he's afraid of. So he says, you have need of endurance. And he's already given them several ways that they can increase their endurance. They can heed the warnings. They must heed the warnings. And he's given them several. They need to recall their initial conversion. Remember how on fire you were for the Lord Jesus? Remember how clear your vision was into future heavenly realities that you could even give up your own property and allow it to be plundered by your persecutors? Remember that? They need to remember their initial conversion, and they need to embrace their assurance. These are some of the things that these listeners needed to do in order to build up that endurance to continue in the faith and to not back off and to not leave the race. But now in chapter 11, he's giving them something else that will help them in their endurance, and he's giving them examples. Examples of saints who had gone before them who persevered through very challenging circumstances. Circumstances that seemed to call into question God's promises. And he says, you need to see the lives of these people and how they were able to persevere through exceedingly challenging circumstances. Circumstances that seemed to make the promises that they were given not even possible to be fulfilled. You need to see their example, and you need to be encouraged by that example. There is something about real-life examples that motivates us in in a significant way. I know that when I feel a lack of motivation to continue my exercise routine, it's helpful sometimes to get on YouTube and to find some of my favorite Uh, professional athletes and to hear them talk about how they manage their discipline and their regular routine that just just gives me motivation to go out the next day and to continue to working continue working out because I see their example it's a real life example and these are excellent sources of motivation if you're practicing to become an excellent musician it is so helpful to have examples whether living or dead those you can read about or those you can meet with and see So they can show you and motivate you through their example how they disciplined themselves and persevered through difficulty in order to perfect their craft. If you want to be an excellent doctor, if you want to be an excellent teacher, if you want to be an excellent manager, you need real life examples. In fact, the Christian life is not meant to be lived, believe it or not, by sheer principle. We need real life examples. We need them in the church and we need to look at them in the past, these Old Testament saints. And we've already seen the the examples of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. And today we're going to find some more encouragement from another event in Abraham's life. But we're also going to consider Abraham's son, his grandson, and his great-grandson and see how they all exercise faith in circumstances that were far from ideal. In circumstances that seem to call into question God's very promises. 
He is writing to these believers so that he might give them example after example after example of people who persevered in their faith so that they themselves would be encouraged to and motivated to persevere in their faith. And by extension, he's encouraging us. We need these examples. We need real life examples that we can read about. And I think it's right to say we need real life examples that we can see among us. I've shared with you guys before, there's a particular time in my life at seminary where a real-life example was particularly encouraging to me, and I could even sense my own faith growing because of how I was interacting with this godly man who persevered through incredible trial. We need these real-life examples, whether they are from past or whether they are present, and they're vital for our faith. They strengthen our faith and nourish us. So let us look at the first example today, verses 17 through 19. Let's consider Abraham's Abraham's promise-driven sacrifice. Abraham's promise-driven sacrifice. The author of Hebrews has already explained how Abraham was a wanderer and a nomad in the, the very land that God had promised him and his descendants. And he was able to wander because he was able to see past his circumstances into his heavenly inheritance and not just see his earthly circumstances. And this enabled him to continue on and to obey the Lord. But here we're brought to another situation in Abraham's life where the promises seem to be in great jeopardy again. The promises seem to be in jeopardy just by the sheer fact that he's wandering around and is a no man and a stranger in the very land that God had promised him. But here's another event which seems to absolutely contradict the very promises that he was given by God. What's this event? Well, we can turn back to Genesis 22, and we're going to be in Genesis for a little bit. We'll be turning back and forth, so you might want to keep your finger in Hebrews and keep your another finger in Genesis. Genesis chapter 22. This is an event which many of you are probably familiar with. It's a famous uh, Bible story. People who aren't even Christian may know this story. It's the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. And it says this in the text. It says in verse 1, chapter Genesis 22, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will tell you. Now, as parents, that hits pretty hard just initially. But we also have to consider the gravity of this command in light of what Abraham's already been told. He has been told that he will be granted great and many promises, but they will only come through Isaac. And God made that point even when Abraham and his wife arranged for the promise to come through Ishmael, through Abraham sleeping with his wife's servant, Hagar, God made it clear, no, 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 it's not going to come through that line. It's going to come through the line that comes from your own body, your own son who comes from you and Sarah coming together in marital union. That's the son who will be the recipient of the promises. He will be the son of promise. So then you come to this point in Abraham's life and God says, oh, now I want you to kill the son of promise. Pardon? You, you want me to, what? well, actually, that's not his response. But that's how we understand the gravity of this situation. The promise of a son through Sarah was a long time coming. And then it was fulfilled. And God said that it's through the son that you will receive your promises. 
Actually, now it's time to sacrifice him. Hard to stomach. The command appears to contradict the promise. Let me say that again. The command from God appeared to contradict the promise from God. Those are the circumstances. Could you imagine more difficult circumstances? I don't think I could. A situation where the living God who has made you a promise is now coming to you with a command that appears to contradict the promise. Let's just be frank. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. That's a sharp knife, isn't it? God knows he loves his son. I want you to take the thing dearest to you and sacrifice it because I've commanded you to. And what we see in Abraham's case is that he did not flinch. He did not question. He did not hesitate. Why? This is key. Because the promise became the controlling interpretational principle or truth, you could say, in how he understood God's command. The promise became the controlling interpretational truth in how he understood God's command. The promise drove everything, even how he interpreted this command. What do I mean? He interpreted God's commandment to sacrifice Isaac with reference to the promise that he had already made, that he would bless him through Isaac. Everything revolved around the promise. God made that promise. Through Isaac, you will receive great blessing. Your descendants will be named through Isaac. Land, people, nations. That's the promise. Here's the command. Now I want you to kill Isaac. But Abraham feared God and he believed God. He knew God was trustworthy and this trust enabled him to obey a command that appeared to contradict the previous promise. But notice this. This is, this is key because, because Abraham's faith is already operative in the unfolding of this event, very early in the unfolding of this event. Notice what happens in chapter 22. We'll continue. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come again to you. That is a statement of faith. He believed that his son was going to come back with him despite the fact that he knew he needed to carry out the sacrifice. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son and he took in his hand the knife, uh, in the fire and the knife. And so they went, the both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? What's going through his son's mind at this point? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, the both of them, together. Do you see everything about his faith and the promise is controlling how he understands God, how he understands God's character, how he understands God's power to bring about the promise. It didn't matter what God commanded. He knew God was faithful. 
He had already indicated by the way he talked to these young men and by the way he talked to his own son, God's going to work this out. And here are some ways he might work this out. And the, the author of Hebrews says this. This is how the author of Hebrews interprets it. An amazing uh, act of faith here. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring named. How was he able to do that? How was he able to do, do this? He tells us, verse 19, he considered that God was able to raise him up from the dead, which, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He went in obedience to that command with this conviction. I trust God. He's given me this promise. I'm expecting a real and literal fulfillment of this promise. Therefore, maybe God can raise him from the dead. He'll, he'll, he'll raise him from the dead. That's what he'll do. And that's precisely what God would do, figuratively speaking. If, I, if God has told me to sacrifice my one and only son, the son of promise, and yet he has promised that all the promises will come through him and all my blessings will come through him, then God's going to do something. And he, Abraham has insight into the very character and power of God, and he concludes, well, then God's going to raise him up. How did he come to that conclusion? Well, it's possible that he was keeping in mind what he had been told earlier, what he and Sarah had been told earlier back in Genesis chapter 18. You might remember when the visitors came and the Lord, the visitors came to Abraham and Sarah, and they spoke to, to Abraham and said, by this time next year, your wife is going to bear a son. And Sarah overhears this and laughs like, yeah, right, because I'm an, a really old woman, and my, my husband is no spring chicken himself, and I doubt that's going to happen. Right? And she laughs. And, the, and they overhear this, and the Lord says, uh, why, why did she laugh when, when I, and, and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And what was the response? Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, that's right. Amen. That's right. We've got a theologian in the house. No, no, nothing is too hard for the Lord. And so is Abraham, he's pondering these things. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. And this is giving him insight into how God is going to carry out the promise. And the author of Hebrews is focusing on this knowledge or this insight that God is going to raise up my son even if I sacrifice him. And of course, we saw in that Genesis account that Abraham's even anticipating that God will provide a substitute for his son. And of course, this is pointing towards Jesus Christ, as we'll see in a moment. But he sees here that Abraham is expecting a literal fulfillment of the promise. God, you've promised my blessings will come through Isaac. You'll have to, you're going to have to raise him up from the dead. I expect you to do something like that if I sacrifice him. When a commandment that seemed to contradict the promise came to Abraham, faith in that promise gave Abraham insight into the character and power of God and enabled him to obey. Abraham knew that God was good and trustworthy, and that controlling belief enabled him to obey the commandment. He was anchored in God's faithfulness. And that, this story must have been tremendously helpful for these people that the author of Hebrews is writing to, because they were being tested just like Abraham was being tested. Their, their faith was being tested just like Abraham's faith was being tested. It doesn't feel right now like I'm the recipient of God, like I'm the recipient of God's blessing. 
they could have been feeling and thinking. We're enduring persecution, having our property taken away, people pressuring us on every side to walk away from Jesus Christ. It doesn't feel like I'm under God's blessing. If I'm favored in God's sight, why am I suffering so much? And so their faith is being tested, just like Abraham's was. And so they're receiving encouragement. Wait, Abraham, he was driven by the promise. And we've been promised by God an eternal inheritance that he will bring about, despite how bad it looks for us right now. And this example of Abraham was to do precisely that, to encourage them to interpret their circumstances, not through their circumstances, but through the promise, through the knowledge of God's faithfulness. If he's promised that you will receive an eternal inheritance through faith in Jesus Christ, you will receive that inheritance. It doesn't matter how bad things are right now. Even though the world looks at you as a poor, pathetic loser, and you are, like Abraham, a stranger in a strange land. We talked about this last week. Some of you feel like strangers in a strange land among your family members, among your co-workers, and just among people in this society because of how against Christian uh, against Christianity they are and against Christ they are and against God's word they are. So you feel like a stranger in a strange land. But Abraham was the same. He was a stranger in a strange land and his faith was tested. And here's what's interesting. God was sovereign over Abraham's testing which means God is sovereign over their testing. None of this is accidental. But let's just go back here to this verse just briefly as we close out Abraham's example. Where the author says that, by, uh, that Abraham received Isaac back figuratively speaking. The word here, figuratively speaking, is the word from which we get the English word parable. The, I, the narrative of Isaac is meant to point to a greater reality. And the reason we know that that's how he's using the word parable here is because that's how he uses this word later on in Hebrews 9.9. Or I'm sorry, earlier, not later on, but earlier in Hebrews 9.9, he uses this word uh, that's translated uh, here as, figuratively speaking, he uses that word in Hebrews 9.9 to refer to the way the tabernacle was symbolically represented something that, was happened, that would happen later on. So in Hebrews 9.9, he uses that word to demonstrate that, the, that God is doing something with the tabernacle that is symbolic, and then using this here to refer back to the situation with Isaac and Abraham, where God receives Isaac back, this was also something that was symbolic. And so what are we supposed to see here in this receiving back of his son, figuratively speaking? Well, the interpretation of the, the Isaac and Abraham story has been among Christians ever since the first century through the Reformers. It has been to see this particular story as a story or a type of Jesus Christ. That in the Abraham and Isaac story, you have elements that point directly to what will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You have the father giving up his one and only son. You have the substitutionary lamb coming in place of the boy and, and so that he doesn't have to suffer, but God provides the sacrifice. All of these elements pointing to a later reality in Christ. And so when he says he received him back, figuratively speaking... In a sense, Abraham did give up his son to death, didn't he? In his heart, that's what he had to do. 
When he raised that knife, he was planning to plunge it into his son. He had given his son over to death in his own heart. His son was gone. And so when he was, when God came down and stopped him from doing that, it is though he received him back from the dead. But that wasn't just for Abraham and Isaac. That was to point a picture of a coming resurrection, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the true and real resurrection. And like I've mentioned, this interpretation has been held in the church from very early in church history, very uh, early in the first century even, and on through the Reformers, beholding and seeing in Abraham and Isaac's story a picture of Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection. And all of this comes about in Abraham's life because he was driven by a promise. And this is how we are to be encouraged and how the uh, listeners, the original listeners to be, were to be encouraged. So that's Abraham's promise-driven sacrifice. Let's now look at Isaac's promise-driven blessings. Admittedly, these next few will be rather short and sweet. Because the point is simply to say that each of these were making promises to their sons and to their children that are based on promises that have been given to them by God. They were blessing their sons based on faith and a promise that had been given to them previously by God. Turning now back to Genesis chapter 26, so just a few chapters later, Genesis chapter 26, we're going to see a promise that was given to Isaac. Genesis 26, verses 1 through 5. Now, there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will... Be with you and bless you, for to you I will give your offspring, and I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give you your offspring, I will give your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This was the controlling promise in Isaac's life. How do we know that? Well, we know that because when he comes to die and he blesses his two sons, he blesses them on the basis of this promise. He's been given a promise. It's not immediately fulfilled in his life, but he looks at his son and he believes that it will be fulfilled and he blesses them according to that promise that he had received from the Lord. Therefore, he's acting and speaking in faith. And that's the author of Hebrews' point. Isaac is acting in faith. He's still believing the promise, even though it hasn't been fulfilled in his life. And what's interesting about this particular scenario, however, is how Isaac remains fixed on the promise, even though there's some subterfuge that happens in the giving of the, 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 the blessings to his two sons. So if you know the story, you know what happened was, is that I, I, uh, Esau was his firstborn, in terms of who came out of the, the womb first. Esau was the firstborn. And so who gets the firstborn rights? Well, in the ancient Near East, if you're the firstborn, then you are the one who to receive the, the bulk of the inheritance. You are the special firstborn son. That's just the way it worked. Well, Jacob, early on, tricks his brother into giving up his birthright. And so Esau coughs it up and says, I don't, who cares, I don't need it. Uh, and he gives it to Jacob. So Jacob tricks his brother into giving him the firstborn rights. So now all of a sudden, Jacob has firstborn rights. By fraud, you could say. 
Well, then, as, as Isaac gets older, here comes Jacob in his deception again. And now he's going to try to steal Esau's blessing. So he approaches his father, and he actually dresses in some hairy garments because Esau was a hairy man. And now uh, Isaac has gotten to be to such an age that he can barely see, and this is going to be an easy uh, fraud to pull off, if you can believe it, because he's dressed in these garments, he smells like his brother, he feels like his brother, and he's going to go deceive his dad and to receive the uh, blessing. And, and Jacob still receives from Isaac future uh, uh, blessings based on a future promise. So here, even as Isaac is being deceived, nevertheless, the controlling promise is God is going to bless me, and he's going to bless my offspring. He's already promised me that. I'm not going to hedge on that. I'm going to bless my son accordingly. Unfortunately for Esau, he was tricked, and he was actually blessing his secondborn son. Nevertheless, he was rooted in these promises and therefore blessing his son based on these promises. But even when Isaac finds out that he has been deceived, he doesn't go back on what he has said. This is amazing. When Esau learns that his blessing has been stolen from his younger brother, he pleads with his dad Isaac to give him a blessing. But Isaac doesn't switch things around and be like, well, okay, I'll take that from Jacob and I'll give it back to you. No, rather he maintains what he should maintain. He says, quote, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. That statement, you shall serve your brother, is important because it's something else that Isaac would have known about. That was a promise made to Rebekah when she conceived Jacob and Esau in the womb. The Lord said, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Can you believe that? Even that, now everything, despite the deception, God is even working out everything to bring about his promises. Jacob knew that. I'm sorry, Isaac knew that. He understood that, and he blesses the both boys accordingly. Even though he had been tricked by, by Jacob, and Jacob had taken the blessing reserved for Esau, he still maintains his faith in God's future promises, and in the promise that the younger of his sons would serve the older, Isaac is driven by God's promises. That's the point. His promises, the promises that he, are, he received is what drives his faith, drives his words, drives the very blessings to his son. And this, again, we've mentioned the same with Abraham. This, this faith is remarkable because he and his father Abraham were wanderers in the very land that God had promised to give them. God told them he would be a sojourner, and he was. Isaac was a sojourner. He wandered all the way through the promised land up into Haran that was north of Mesopotamia. He was all over the place. Nevertheless, Isaac trusted God and was therefore able to bless his sons according to future promises. And if you remember, this idea of believing future promises is what faith is all about in Hebrews chapter 11. It's always a future-oriented faith. You're believing in God's word and what he has promised in the future, and your faith looks through your present circumstances into the future and what you will receive then. And this is precisely what enabled Isaac to speak the way that he did, with a faith unwavering as he blesses his two sons. Well, we also see this faith in Jacob as well, Jacob's promise-driven worship. Though Jacob had some pretty 
bad beginnings, you could say. Nevertheless, God was with him. God had bestowed his love upon him, and Jacob exercised faith in the Lord and continued to follow him. And at the end of his life, when he came to the end of his life, he made his son swear, his son Joseph swear, to take his bones out of Egypt and bring them to the land of Canaan. Because they're presently in Egypt at this point. And yet, he knows, Jacob knows that this is not what God has promised. This is not the fulfillment of his promise. He knows that at some point, God's going to have to come along and bring them out of Egypt. And so he tells his son Jacob, or I'm sorry, Joseph, boy, there's a lot of names to get confused here. Jacob tells his son Joseph to bring him out when he dies, to bring his body, his bones, bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land. Why? Because he believed that this was still going to be fulfilled. Now, the author of Hebrews is not mentioning that particular act of faith, but I think it's probably assumed because in in chapter 47 of Genesis, he tells him, he gives his command just prior to the point that the author of Hebrews makes, the the blessing of uh, Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So it's all in the same context. Jacob is worshiping the Lord at the same time that he is anticipating the the fulfillment of these promises to the point where he can tell his son Joseph, listen, take my body up from here and bring it into the promised land when you get there. And when I bless your sons, those blessings will be concerning these future promises that God has made. So he blesses the two sons after he makes Joseph commit to bringing him up and bearing him in a place in Canaan, he now is going to bless these two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. He says, Let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And make." Uh, and this blessing reflects faith in God's promises to make Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants a great nation. Again, just acting in faith and speaking that way. And prior to this blessing that he gives to these boys, he had had received a promise in chapter 48, and he says this, chapter 48, verses 3 through 4, this is the the blessing or the promise that he had received from God. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I'll make you a company of peoples and give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And then he blesses the boys according to that promise. A promise that he had not seen the fulfillment of, but nevertheless believed would happen. As Jacob comes to the end of his life, he is worshiping the Lord and speaking in ways that reflect his faith in God's promises. He believed that God would give this land to his offspring and therefore bless Joseph's sons accordingly. And God loves this kind of faith. A faith that cannot see the actual fulfillment at this point, but nevertheless believes. Why? Because God's not arbitrary, because God doesn't lie, and he's always faithful to his promises. They may take time to come to fruition, but they will come to fruition. And that leads us now finally to this short little statement about Joseph's promise-driven instructions. Very much like his own dad's instructions to him. He's now going to instruct his brothers to bring his bones up from Egypt. Why? Because he knew, like his father Jacob knew, that this is not what God has promised. We are presently in Egypt, but God has said he's going to give us the land of Canaan. Therefore, I am telling you, bring my bones up 
to Canaan because I know you're going there. We're not there yet, but I know we're going there. This is Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 through 25. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. He's giving a command to his brothers that is based on faith in a promise that God had given him. Clearly an act of faith, because they were not yet to Canaan. And it, and it looked like it was going to be some time till they got there. Yet he's giving these instructions to his brothers. When he came to the end of his life, he was, and he, was, he and his family were still in Egypt, it appeared even unlikely that would make it back to Canaan. I mean, on what basis would you conclude that you're going to make it back to Canaan? You're in Egypt, and that's where your livelihood is at. What's going to get you up there? But he believed the promises that God had made to him, that God had made to his father, that God had made to his grandfather and to his great-grandfather, and he instructs his brothers, take my bones up with you. In each instance, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph, these saints were placed in situations that appeared to call into question the promises that God had made. And that's what's so key for us to see here. In every situation, they're placed in circumstances that called into question the promises that God had made. Their circumstances seemed to say God's promises couldn't be fulfilled. Yet, by faith, they beheld God as faithful, and they saw into the future what was prepared for them, and they continued to believe. And they spoke and acted in ways that demonstrated that they believed in God despite their circumstances. And it is this kind of example that they needed the, uh, to the, the people to whom the author of Hebrews is writing, and it's precisely this example that we need, don't we? Don't we need this example of people who whose controlling interpretational principle was the promises of God. And it's through that promise that they interpreted everything else in their life, including the the most difficult circumstances that they were in. Abraham's trust in God's faithfulness enabled him to obey God in the hardest possible circumstance. Did he not? A remarkable set of circumstances, if you consider just how badly they seem to contradict God's promise. Yet he trusted in the Lord. The promise controlled everything else. And therefore, he had insight into God's character and God's power. Isaac believed the promises of God made to his dad and to him about a future inheritance, so he was able to invoke future blessings on Jacob and Esau, despite the fact that he was like a nomad like his dad. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Verse 21, this is Jacob. He was able to invoke future blessing on Joseph's sons. In a future inheritance, even while they're in Egypt, by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And then 22, similarly, Joseph is able to instruct his brothers to take him up to be buried in Canaan. Verse 22 of Hebrews 11, by faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. In every case, brothers and sisters, Each of these saints was able to see past their circumstances to the faithfulness of God and thereby believe and obey Him. And they conducted themselves and spoke in ways that reflected their trust in God's faithfulness. That's why these examples are needed. 
these saints were faced with circumstances that called into question God's faithfulness. Are you in circumstances like that right now? I wonder. I think the reality of Scripture allows us to say that you could be in circumstances that seem to call in question God's promises. The Bible doesn't hesitate to, to look our hard circumstances in the face and recognize what they might tempt us to start to conclude. Right? Let me give you one here, for example. Romans 8.28. Here's a promise. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. That is an amazing promise. That may be one of the greatest promises in all of the Bible. It's telling you, just taking it at face value, it's telling you that no matter what is happening in your life or has happened in your life, God in His infinite power and wisdom will turn it to your good. And yet you're in circumstances right now where you're thinking... Yeah, I don't know how he's going to do that. You're in a situation where it's so hard and so bad, you can't conceive of how God will turn this to your good. What good could come from this evil? Perhaps something just horrible happened to you and you're having a hard time seeing how God could fulfill this promise. You're in possession of a promise that you're questioning how it will come about. What do you do? What do you do? Either you're in the situation right now or you're going to come to the situation in the future. The near or far future. What do you do? What do I do? First, you settle in your mind that God is faithful to His promises. I simply can't improve on what the Scripture exhorts us to do. We must be able to behold God is faithful and good. To look past and allow the clouds of our circumstance to part just enough to see the sun shining through, and that sun is God's goodness and faithfulness. Settle in your mind that God is faithful to His promises, Romans 8.28 included. He cannot lie. If He's made that statement, if He's made that promise, it will be fulfilled. He has proved it over and over and over again. So you don't just have the promise, you actually have a record of God's character in his actions fulfilling all the promises he said he would fulfill in the past. The old saints considered God faithful. You need to remind yourself of the countless ways that he's been faithful to his people Israel, faithful to give them the land, faithful to prosper them, faithful to bring them back to the land after they had been chastened, faithful to send a savior, faithful to raise a savior from the dead, faithful to provide us a complete salvation of which we need to add nothing Faithful to justify you, faithful to regenerate your heart and make you a new creature, faithful to sustain this church, faithful to preserve his word, faithful to provide for your needs. He has been faithful, 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 faithful. So then you take that character that's been proven and you fix your heart on it. And you know, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will fulfill this. But if we, if we see Abraham's situation, we also see that, that this faith, this controlling promise, actually gives us insight into the power and character of God of, of how he might fulfill this. 
you might start to see that God who created the world and who has infinite power, who knows all things from beginning to end, who established the heavens and who exercises perfect sovereignty over every single element of creation and who accomplishes everything he desires with zero frustration, who has been directing your life from the very beginning, from before you were even born till now, he is going to take that recent horrible situation and turn it out for your good. But it's only when the promise is controlling your thinking that you can have that kind of insight into God's character and power. So like Abraham, the the promise has to control. Did not God take the most horrible situation in the history of mankind and turn it out for our good? He He took the worst situation in history and turned it out for the greatest good that has ever happened. When his own son was crucified on the cross by evil men, though he was innocent. This is as bad as it gets when it, when it comes to God, what God will allow in His providence. Just think of that. God allowing His own Son to be crucified on a cross. Could you imagine a worse set of providential circumstances? Well, I sure couldn't. Is God, God control it all? I mean, the whole world is a mess. There's sin everywhere, running rampant. God's not even in control enough to get His Son off the cross. Well... That, was, that could be a way you can interpret things. But that's not promise-driven faith, is it? That's not faith in a faithful God, is it? Because you see in that circumstance that was the worst, that's as bad as it could possibly get, God's turning that for the benefit of His people and for the glory of His name. You can bank everything you own on this truth. God will work all things together for your ultimate good. He will raise you from the dead, and I believe someday you will see exactly how it all worked out together. Perfectly, seamlessly, and you will stand in awe at how God was able to do that. We'll probably be just looking at that all eternity. That's what will take up our eternity, just pondering that. How God is able to turn everything for His own purposes and for our good. Every single thing, even your sins and mistakes, believe it or not. So that you can say things like this, the Christian never really fails. Even when you fail, you don't fail because God's turning that to your good. What about this command in, in uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight? Therefore, my beloved, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul was writing to the Corinthians and saying, in light of Christ's resurrection, remain steadfast in your labor for the Lord. Remain steadfast in your service, in your ministry. But then he adds this promise, knowing that your labor is not in vain. That's a promise. Here's a promise. God is saying to you, your, your labor is not in vain. But I, I, I'm confident that in your life, at some point, you felt like your ministry is in vain. You don't see much fruit. You often feel inadequate. Am I even making any difference in the world or for anybody? And Paul knows the temptations to feel like that. You just think about Paul. He's dealing with the church that he planted and now is completely off the rails. You, you want to talk about discouragement and feeling like your work is in vain. The, the, some of the churches that Paul's planted are just completely off the rails. And so he knows that that temptation is like false apostles were attacking the church and other churches that he had planted. Some people to whom Paul had ministered had walked away from the faith. Do you think he felt the temptation to be discouraged and to say, this is even, am I even doing anything? Is this, am I labor in vain? But the promise is that your labor is never in vain. Therefore, keep serving God faithfully. And when you 
And when you do see and feel like your labor is in the Lord is in vain and you don't see much fruit or you wonder what you're doing is making any difference, you let the promise, in this case, your labor in the Lord is not in vain, you let that promise control how you interpret your circumstances. It becomes the controlling truth in your heart. And then you begin to have insight like Abraham into the character and power of God. My labor in the Lord is not in vain. God sees what I do for his name and my glory, or for my name, for his name and his glory. And he sees what I am doing, my labor. And he, though it is small, he will reward me. God sees all that I do. And he will use that in ways that I can't even conceive now. But I will be able to behold later. I mean, you just consider the history of the church at this point. Some people in, in church history who have made tremendous impact, who probably thought at the end of their life, what have I even done? David Brainerd is a perfect example. David Brainerd, 18th century missionary to Native Americans in the Northeast. He was a Christian not for very many years because he, he died young. And uh, he served faithfully, but he was sick the entire time, just desperately sick the whole time. And he didn't really take care of his health very well, so that didn't make things uh, any better. But he was, he was faithfully ministering to just a handful of Native Americans in the Northeast. And he had a few converts. And he wrote some things down. And it just so happens that he was friends with Jonathan Edwards. And then David Brainerd dies and the world forgets about him. Except the world didn't forget about him. You look at his ministry, it wasn't particularly remarkable in terms of the explosion of, of converts among these Native Americans. But then Jonathan Edwards writes a biography of David Brainerd. And some of the greatest missionaries who have had the greatest impact in the world have said, besides the Bible, David Brainerd's uh, a biography was the most important book in their life. It's the book that sent them out to do missions. And then they had massive, massive success and fruit. And yet you had this Brainerd, whose ministry itself could have concluded, was well, this kind of all in vain? I didn't, what did I even accomplish? That's how God works. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There are ways that the Lord will use it that you can't even conceive of right now. Maybe a hundred years from now he uses it. Who knows? But someday you'll be able to see it, and that's God's promise. Therefore, brothers and sisters, do not give up That's the exhortation of this passage. Do not give up. Do not become unbelieving. By faith in God's future promises, keep obeying. Keep conducting yourself in a way that reflects faith in these promises. Keep speaking in a way that demonstrates that you believe in these promises. And be encouraged by the examples of these saints to root yourself in the promises and faithfulness of God. Let's pray to our faithful God together. Heavenly Father, we... We do ask that you would help us to believe. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. It was the cry of that man who, being so open and honest about his struggles, said, I believe, help my unbelief. And that would be the cry of each of us today, I trust. We need eyes to see. Your Spirit enables our our faith even. So we cry out to you, God, would you help us to maintain, to rivet our focus and our heart upon your faithfulness and your goodness, knowing that you are truly good and that even our circumstances, though troubling and discouraging and even calling into question your promises, are nevertheless not truly calling into question because you are faithful and have proven yourself faithful to fulfill all your promises to your people.
Help us to believe that this day, even as we leave here today, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.